1: Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. On the 3rd, 13th, and 23rd of November, we'll feature a different historic bomber from the World War II era North American B 25 Mitchell and Boeing B 29 Superfortress to the Cold War era Avro Vulcan. Never mind the announcements, listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to the bombers with your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor
2: Boswell. Welcome, everybody. This is uh, Boat from the air-to-air weapons episode, back on uh, episode 18. Jello has graciously let me host an episode for Bomber Month 2020, and I'm coming to you with an episode on the mighty B-29 Superfortress. I'm here with Mr. Uh, Al Benzing, Al, thanks for being here. How are you doing today? I'm
3: doing great. I'm really looking forward to talking about this awesome uh, B-29 today.
2: Man, I'm really excited. This is a pretty awesome machine, and I know the listeners have kind of been itching for more uh, Bomber content, so I know they're all excited to hear what you have to say as we uh, jump into the second annual Bomber Month. So uh, it's really great to have you with us again. And actually, it's again, actually. We're recording this on September 16th, 2020. But you were on a video call with Jello earlier this month covering, obviously, uh, the B-29 and a little bit about your uh, current running fundraiser. But this episode won't be airing until November. So what's kind of the progress and any kind of update you have uh, at this point, since we're not going to hear this for a couple months?
3: Yeah, well, I was really pleased to see the number of views of that promo. Jelly did a great job of putting a montage together of that beautiful B-29, yeah. which, of course, is an engineering marvel. So we've had some response already, some donations, and some people that were ordering books and so on, because we're trying to keep this aircraft going and we're doing that through fundraising and so forth that I hope we'll talk about here in just a little bit.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely will. It's definitely an amazing machine. So we'll definitely cover as much of this thing as we possibly can. So uh, we're ready to hear all about the amazing B-29. But for uh, how we typically start these conversations, we're going to start with a little bit about you so that listeners can get to know you and where you're coming from, and all that good stuff. So are you ready to get started? You
3: bet. I'm certainly ready. Let's go.
2: First and foremost, tell us about yourself. Uh, where are you from? Where did you go to school? Kind of your background, and then what are you doing these days?
3: I'm from Wisconsin originally. I grew up on a dairy farm, so that was the first 20 years of my life or so. I uh, did two years of uh, college, and then along came the draft. So I enlisted in the Air Force. I did a four-year tour, which took me to Japan and the Philippines. I was in Intel. And uh, set me up for a lot of opportunities later. From there, I worked for a defense contractor in IT and became a flight instructor. So that's where I got into the aviation part of things. Awesome. Eventually, I uh, had enough time to uh, get hired by a regional airline and then on to the major. So I flew for about 24 years with Northwest Airlines based out of Minneapolis. Then that after a merger or two, uh, we ended up with Delta Airlines. And then I retired off of Delta about nine years ago.
2: Fantastic. Well, that's really great. And so uh, now, obviously, you uh, finished your civilian professional flying career. But now you've transitioned into uh, the B-29 and kind of working in that realm. So what is your kind of role now? What are you involved with these days?
3: I've started to get involved by uh, flying the B-24 Liberator both seats in that, and then uh, the B-29 about seven years ago. And so I'm currently an aircraft commander of the B-24 and the B-29, as well as an instructor and check pilot on both of those aircraft. And I fly also the T-34, and we have an L-26 as well. So I stay busy with uh, some very, very iconic aircraft.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're definitely uh, keeping your time filled very, very well. I know we have future plans for covering the B-24. So I think we'll probably come back to you and get your experience and knowledge on the B-24. But for today's episode, we're going to focus on the B-29, obviously. So let's get to it. This is a World War II-era bomber, nicknamed, I guess, the Super Fortress. With all your experience and knowledge on the systems and the aircraft, can you talk about any of the developmental history and the background of the aircraft? Uh, Specifically, let's maybe start with like the initial requirement that the, I guess, Army Air Corps at this point put forward.
3: Right. Well, they were looking at uh, how do we improve on the B-17, for example, which was already in development and starting to come out. And we're talking about 1938. Okay. So they needed something that would go much further, faster, bigger payload. Part of the thinking was what if Britain fell to the Nazis? Okay. Then what? So that was some of the thinking, and then later that evolved more into something that could be used in the Pacific against Japan. Okay. You know, more specifically, they wanted it to be able to go 2,500 miles and carry 20,000 pounds of bombs, go 400 miles an hour. Okay. And they largely met those requirements with a lot of other improvements over what the B-17s and the B-24s could do.
2: Okay. Okay. From that kind of background and history, was there any sort of precursor that they kind of had in mind, I guess, that would have given them the idea to target those two specific countries? Because obviously World War II hadn't necessarily fully kicked off yet, but uh, and we hadn't been involved yet. It was just, just kind of a planning kind of situation.
3: So really, it was some forward-thinking people that were seeing uh, you know, the impending doom if we didn't prepare. I gotcha. If it wasn't for that the development could not have occurred in the time frame that it did. And even as such, they did a tremendous amount in a few years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, a lot of that stuff, look at today with uh, COVID-19 and and the development there of uh, vaccines and all the PPE and everything else like that. It's definitely kind of in that same vein, but obviously on a grander scale when it comes to an aircraft development. So when did it actually first fly? Do you know that?
3: The first flight was uh, December of 1942, December 30th of 1942. Okay. So that was pretty quick because the formal spec came out in December of 39.
2: About three years, give or take. So yeah, that's very quick, especially considering today's timeline to develop a weapon system, flying weapon systems, at least.
3: And there was so much of that engineering, so much had to be developed. There's so much new. So that's where the time and complexity came about.
2: Okay. Well, so in terms of the aircraft itself, were there multiple variants or was just an A model or what do you know about kind of the progression of the development of that aircraft? Well,
3: it started out with two different types that were a minor change. Uh, Everything that was built in Renton by Boeing had a a center wing section with little stub wings, then the uh, wings bolted to it. Everything that was built in Wichita was just a two-piece wing that was bolted together in the middle. Oh, wow. And this really just simply had to do with the amount of space they had in the uh, plant where they put them together. Oh, no kidding. Later, they developed other variants based on the needs. For example, the silver plate aircraft they were called, which were the nuclear aircraft, they came out of Omaha, the Martin plant. In Atlanta, the Bell plant there had regular B-29s at first, but then they've built the B model, which was a lighter version without the gun turrets. Okay. So there was some development along the way, some differences in variants.
2: Obviously, you know, as we get further and further down the timeline of the, uh, the aircraft and the follow on, you know, mission requirements and everything like that, obviously all technology kind of goes obsolete at some point. So that, were there some changes later on that the aircraft went through to make it last a little bit longer, I guess?
3: Well, most of that development was with the engines. The biggest changes as they went along is, are we going to have gun turrets or not? Are we going to carry armament or not? Okay. They did have a 20 millimeter cannon in the tail on some. Okay. And then not, but most of the improvements really were done to the engines and that was out of necessity.
2: Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll talk through some of the variances. We go through some of the mission-specific kind of things, I would imagine. But as far as the normal baseline aircraft starting out, what was the crew complement that was involved in operating the aircraft and accomplishing the mission?
3: So normally it would be a 10-man crew. And then, of course, one of the variants I didn't mention was radar. Okay. A fair number of aircraft had radar. And if so, of course, they'd have another crew member. So it would be 11
2: for radar operator. So we're talking pilot- navigator, bombardier, that kind of thing?
3: Yeah. So you had pilot, the aircraft commander, co-pilot, the bombardier up front, uh, navigator behind him, flight engineer, of course, sitting backwards. You had radio operator, and all these were in the cockpit. Okay. And in the back, you had central fire control, which sat up on a rotating barber chair, we call it. Okay. It was heading in the bubble, and then left and right gunners. Then the radar operator was back there as well. And then in the far back was the tail gunner.
2: And was there a way to get from the front to the back of the aircraft if they needed to swap crew positions or something like that?
3: To some degree. Okay. They have what is referred to as the tunnel. A lot of times it's called a communications tunnel because there were also cables running through there.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah.
3: But the cockpit and the gunner's compartment, the main gunner's compartment, were connected by this tunnel. Okay. So they were both pressurized and this tunnel connected them. So the crew could go back and forth at will. Okay. Okay. However, the tail gunner was in his separate pressurized compartment and he could not get out of that unless they were low enough to depressurize.
2: I see. Okay. He's just kind of stuck in his own little world the whole time then. Yes. As far as communications then, and you kind of touched on a little bit there with cables and stuff like that. I know, you know most of our listeners have probably seen the Memphis Belle and the B-17 and all the yelling and, and everything that they're doing. And obviously, it's a little bit dramatized for the movie and whatnot, but how did all of these people communicate for such an, a large aircraft?
3: So everybody was on an interphone system. Okay. You know, there were protocols about who says what, when, as we do today. But that was the primary method. But they had insulated that aircraft pretty well. And uh, central fire control the guy that I know, he said that it was so quiet back there, you could carry on a normal conversation. Oh, wow. Which surprised me a little bit, but he said it was very muted.
2: Wow. That's amazing.
3: And our airplane doesn't have that, but it's still not as loud as, say, a B-24.
2: Okay. All right. And that was just some kind of material they put on the inside of the uh, airframe itself?
3: Yeah. Padded insulations, both for temperature and noise.
2: All right. Well, we do have Patreon subscribers that help out uh, and support the show. And one of them was uh, Jim Gundog, and he asked a question. Uh, and you kind of touched on it as a replacement for the b-17 and i think everybody associates b-17 with flying over uh, europe and and germany and dropping bombs over there but the b-29 you touched on initial development of being able to reach out and touch japan and germany but we never really saw it in europe do you have any kind of knowledge on why pacific focus only
3: yes it boiled down to the number of aircraft that would be available primarily Hap Arnold was in charge of the B 29s, both the development and the operation. Okay. And he made sure to quash all of the urgent requests right up to uh, FDR. We need the B 29. And they would make their case and he would continue to quash that because he knew that it would be a struggle to get enough aircraft to do the mission in the Pacific. And he wanted to focus everything there until that job was done.
2: I see. Okay. So basically he, in a way, artificially imposed a limit on what kind of aircraft could go into what theater based on capabilities and that kind of thing.
3: Right. And availability. So there were almost 4,000 built, you know, by the end of the war, but the struggle was to get them out the door in 44, Okay, you know, to be usable. Yeah. And it was a max effort just to do that.
2: Well, that's great. That makes total sense. I know, In previous episodes, we've covered acquisition programs and feasibility of getting a fleet size large enough to do the mission, but then obviously not cost too much uh, in terms right. of dollars. But obviously this is a, a wartime situation and rapid response, filling a critical need, like we talked about earlier, need to make sure that we have the right assets in the right locations in the right quantities. Right. That's definitely a, an interesting bit of background there. I did see a video to follow on to that. I did see a video of B-29s and some P-38s actually taken off out of uh, Gibraltar. So did they ever actually go to Europe at all, or was it pretty much just Pacific? Pacific?
3: I had heard that they had flown one B-29 to Britain, to UK, just to show somebody that it existed, that somebody might be spies for Germany. I don't know. But it was not assigned there. Now, as far as Gibraltar goes, two possibilities. One is that the early deployments were to India, and they did that by going across the Atlantic from South America and across Africa. Now, it's possible that Gibraltar was in the mix for somebody at some point. I see. More likely is that post-war, there were about 75 B-29s that did go to the UK as Washingtons. So they were flown for a number of years. Of course, Gibraltar was a British uh, colony. Yeah, for sure. And so that could have been when they were doing that.
2: Yeah, that was actually one of my follow-on questions. Was the B-29 flown by anybody else? Obviously, it's got the uh, U.S. markings listed all over it, but you mentioned the U.K., and it was called, the. you said, the Washington?
3: Yes, they call it the Washington, and the only other uh, country that flew them, of course, was the knockoff version, the reverse-engineered version that the Russians had, but that didn't come out until about 1957.
2: Okay, so well after kind of Korea right. time frame. Perfect. Let's jump into the purpose of this aircraft here. It's obviously a bomber. What kind of armament was this aircraft typically carrying and capable of carrying and, in terms of bombs or leaflets, that kind of thing?
3: It had a tremendous flexibility. It had two bomb bays, essentially identical bomb bays, fore and aft of the wing. It could carry twenty thousand pounds, even with a pretty good fuel load, you know, more than twice well, it's a lot more than twice, of what a realistic bomb load would be on a 17 or even a B-24. Oh, wow. Okay. And, of course, you could carry bombs in one bomb bay and fuel in the other if that was what the mission called for. Of the munitions themselves, for example, if you were carrying just 500-pounders regular bombs, which you might for the high-altitude missions, you could carry 40 of those, 20 in the front, 20 in the back if you had the weight allowance for that. Or uh you could carry um hundred pound incendiaries and there's enough room for eighty of those weight wise, but it depends sort of how you arrange them in the Bombay, how many you could really carry.
2: Just like the physical size kind of being the limitation there.
3: Right. And how you could arrange the shackles and so on.
2: Okay. For all these weapons, do they have just one standard setup for connecting them to the aircraft while they're in transit?
3: They did for the smaller weights. Okay. When you got into the 1,000-pound, 2,000-pound, 4,000-pound, then there were special arrangements where you may have a single-point connection. Okay. And that certainly was the case for the atom bombs. They were single-point release
2: for those. Do you know the physical dimensions of the bomb bays themselves?
3: I don't. I know that that little boy was 10 feet long. Uh, I don't remember offhand the physical. Okay. Yeah. I do know that Fat Man filled it up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) With a name like Fat Man, you'd think so, right? (laughs) Oh, man. So obviously, lots of different types of bombs. Did they ever do any sort of leaflet missions or anything like that that you're aware of?
3: Yes. And in fact, I was going to mention mining as well.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: At the time, Curtis LeMay was running the show in the Pacific, okay. under Hap Arnold, and the Navy wanted mining done. LeMay didn't want to do it, but he finally did it under orders, <laughs> and it did a very good job of dropping mines. So that was a, a very successful mission because it really shut down the shipping. But they also did drop leaflets. Okay. As they got further into the war, where they had more likely success without getting shot down. They would drop leaflets, like, say, on uh, five primary targets for that coming day. Okay. Basically saying, get out of town, we're bombing your city, surrender, all this kind of stuff. Gotcha. The other thing that they dropped were supplies to the POWs immediately after the war was ended.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: At low level, they would parachute in uh, supplies and 55-gallon drums and so on.
2: Okay. Okay. Tim Sparks also asked a, a following question regarding the Bombay doors, and there was maybe a rumor out there about the pressurization of the aircraft and having to depressurize the whole system prior to dropping bombs. Is that accurate, or is that kind of just a false claim?
3: No, there was uh, there was no need to depressurize to drop bombs. Okay, you had the pressurized cockpit crew area and then a tail gunner, and the bombays were not pressurized, so it didn't matter. You open the doors, drop the bombs, close the doors it didn't matter. Now there's some question about, oh, you know, should you be depressurized if you're at risk of being shot up? Oh. And there's pros and cons to it. You know, what does the pressurization offer us versus if we depressurize up here and we can't function? How does that work?
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
3: So the crews that I've talked to, my recollection is at the high altitudes that they normally did not depressurize, they would be on the oxygen masks partially because they could communicate better. They had a better microphone in the mask than the throat mic. Okay, But also, you know, in case they became depressurized, it just reminds me that the gentleman was talking about uh, taking a hit to the fuselage and he thought they were on fire because the visibility instantly went to zero. Oh no. He couldn't see anything and it completely fogged up when
2: they depressurized. Just from the condensation and the media, the cold temperature kind of thing. Okay. Right. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even put that together. Flying F 16s it's, it's either pressurized or it's not, and it's only not when you're on the ground or the system's broken. So that's a really interesting concept. I hadn't thought about that.
3: And let's talk for a second about at the lower altitudes. Okay, they flew these night missions below ten thousand, generally speaking. Okay. Well, you still had the system operating so that you're getting air and cooling and that sort of thing. So it, you may have not had it pressurized to the degree you might otherwise.
2: Did it have a, kind of like the airlines have a a graduating scale up until a certain point, and then it maintains a standard cabin altitude is the same kind of concept?
3: Yes. Uh, So basically you could go to 6.6 PSI was what the structure was set up for in the relief valves. Okay. So you'd have above 8,000, you'd maintain an 8,000 foot cabin all the way up to about 30,000. Okay. And it didn't go very much higher than that.
2: In terms of service ceiling, you mean? You know, his service
3: ceiling was just over 31.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of some performance issues, what is kind of the max speed of the aircraft in terms for bombing runs, I guess, for employment and then just normal crews where they kind of fly around at?
3: Yeah. You know, that's always a odd number because it's a true airspeed is what matters. Sure. Okay. As you know, there's a lot of things that affect that. And Absolutely. So true airspeed, you're talking around 300. Okay. For normal crews. Uh, normal cruise would be more like 220 in order to not overstress the engines, burn up all your gas. Okay. And we're talking miles per hour here. Yeah. I do recall that what they would do for the bombing runs is they would go to full power for those runs. Okay. So that was always a strain on the engines because they wanted to get it done and get out of there.
2: Yeah, totally. So speaking of bombing runs, I'll come back to the engines here in a bit, but... One of our listeners, Atticus Kurtz, has asked about something called a Pathfinder mission. What can you kind of describe about these Pathfinder missions and do they apply to the B 29?
3: They do. I do recall a number of conversations where they were mentioned. Okay. Basically, you would have the planes that would go in ahead of time to mark the general area. So if you're going to be bombing Tokyo, are you bombing the northwest corner, the southeast corner, or whatever? Yep. So they would go in and mark those in an X form using incendiaries to simply make it simpler for the follow-on bombers to find them.
2: And so speaking of finding them, what were they using to aim, I guess, their drop points?
3: That was the big help, okay? Sure. Because it's hard to find an IP point using, uh, you know, your regular navigation.
2: IP being like an initial point kind of thing?
3: Initial point. Okay. You do have radar on at least some of the aircraft and radar is very useful and very accurate if you have a specific point that's prominent enough to show up.
2: Like a tower or a building or something?
3: More prominent than that. Like you would have uh, Mount Fuji, for example, is not too far from Tokyo. Sure. Okay, here's Mount Fuji. What's the heading? You know, and uh, speed we need to get
2: there. I see.
3: Or the coastline is very unique as you come into the Tokyo area. Okay. The Chiba Peninsula and so on, you can identify. So those things could be used
2: as well. And then to actually employ the bombs during the daytime, is it the Norden bomb site? Is that accurate?
3: Right. The Norden bomb site was used. And of course, then you generally needed clear weather or a few clouds so that you could see the target. Okay. If you were targeting just with radar, it had its challenges, as I was just mentioning, because it just wasn't that good at picking out small items underground.
2: Okay, that's fair. I mean, it is, you know, nineteen forties. So I'm sure radar being a fairly new technology, definitely in regards or in uh, in respect to today's radar capabilities, definitely is a challenge. And even today, uh, it can be a challenge depending on the on the platform. So, well, that's great. So. Those are the, the kind of offensive, any other offensive types of weapons that we're not mentioning or haven't mentioned yet?
3: No, I think those are, are all the munitions.
2: Okay. And so now flipping it on the other side and the, the defensive side of the house, you did mention some guns and turrets and, and that kind of thing. What did it have on it and kind of where were they located and how did they employ that?
3: So this was a huge new development on this aircraft. Previous aircraft had gun turrets or just guns sticking out a window yep. and they were manned. And this one, it was a completely, I don't want to say automatic system. Mm-hmm. It was a remotely controlled system where you had a top and bottom turret in the front, top and bottom turret in the back, and then the tail gun was also remote. Okay. So each gunner had an aiming device that was very sophisticated and it was connected to an analog computer, for lack of a better term. Okay that between the aiming device and that computer, it could calculate, you know, the speed, temperature, altitude, all the things that, the variables that come into play, and the lead. And interestingly, it also would calculate the position of the gunner in the aircraft relative to the turret they're using. Oh, wow. Okay. So if the central fire control was using the forward turret, it would be a different calculation than if the bombardier who had a gun sight was firing that same turret. Oh, wow. Because you're displaced, you know, by 50 feet.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely some, I guess, what you call parallax error associated with where you're looking at versus where you're shooting from. but. Now, were they just looking out a window or were they, did they have like a TV screen or what was the viewing, uh, I guess, for the person?
3: Well, they're looking through a small glass in this device. They had a, lots of different adjustments on it. Okay. So you would look through it and see a pipper, so to speak, and you could adjust it so that you sized it to the wingspan of the enemy. Yep. And then it would do the calculations and you had a trigger there. Oh, okay. You also were holding a dead man switch so that if something happened to you, someone else could take over that gun turret. It's
2: kind of like you constantly holding onto it. And if you released right. it, then they knew it was not being right. used. Then someone, then
3: it would automatically go to someone else. Oh,
2: wow. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah.
3: So the switching itself is fascinating. You would have your defaults of who was doing what you would have overrides And, you know, it was a really a well thought out system.
2: That's amazing, especially, I mean, I just keep coming back to when this was all taking place and and all the things associated with the war and the development of technology and everything to have something, what seems like at that point, so futuristic on an aircraft is is incredible.
3: Yeah. And the responsiveness of these turrets is amazing there. You can see some videos online, but you know, if, if he's rotating the guns up and down with his gun sight, I mean, they are now moving up and down. If he's moving laterally, that gun turret is rotating. Okay. Very precise. It's an amazing. System.
2: For those gun turrets to move, he's obviously not in a, in a ball turret like the B-17 or something. So he's not physically moving with them. Does he just have a joystick that controls it?
3: No, just the gun sight itself moves. Okay. So he's looking through it and he's got his hands right up by his eyes almost on dials. Okay. So he's rotating these and he's twisting left and right in order to continue to view the target, okay, and he can rotate up and down, the turret's just following along. So nobody is in a gun turret on this
2: airplane. Wow, that's amazing. Just to re-clear it in my mind, where again were they sitting on this aircraft?
3: All right, so the bombardier, who's got his northern sight, he also has a gun sight that he can move over and place in front of him. Okay. And so on the way to target, he is running the top and bottom forward turrets. Okay. And when he gets closer to target, the central fire control guy who is sitting in the back gunner's compartment, it's just behind the wing, and he's got a dome that he's sitting up in, he'll now take control of the top turret, and let's say the left blister gunner, left bubble gunner, can take control of the bottom forward turret. That sort of uh, exchange can be happening as it works best for their duties. I see. Wow, that's great!
2: And the whole time they're just talking through the communication system and coordinating who's right. going to do what and everything else like that. What about uh, coordination with the pilot and the the co-pilot? Are they are they having an interaction or anything? Or are they just kind of stay on target, stay on target?
3: They're basically flying the airplane. Central fire control is running the show for the uh, guns. Of course, everybody's looking for the targets and calling out where they might see them. But the central fire control is in charge of the gun system.
2: That's great. So tactical formations as they're flying along? Are they similar to what we've seen in movies and whatnot, like the B-17s, you know, 50 of them in the air at a time? Or are they solo operators or how are they uh, operating this thing?
3: Well, some of each, the bigger the aircraft, the tougher it is to fly it in close formation. And if they were going to do a formation flight, of course they would be taking off single. And rather than form up right over the Marianas, they would all f- fly up sort of loosely until they approached the coast and they would have a rendezvous point. All right. So, of course, the lead would be doing a big circle, probably up to two circles. Okay. And you would be trying to find your lead and form up. And what I've been told is it didn't work very well. <laughs> it's a big sky. Sure. And there are bombers everywhere. And pretty soon you said, uh, that guy's going, let's form up with him. He's going the same place. <laughs> let's go.
2: We'll just kind of figure it out on the way.
3: I think the guy said that of the times that he did it, and I don't know how many missions, probably eight or 10 of those, he said, we only flew with our guy one time.
2: Oh, my gosh.
3: So it was a challenge. And on the atomic mission, on the second mission, they never did find the rendezvous guy. The guy that was supposed to be their photo plane never did find him.
2: Oh, man. Obviously one out of however many is not a very successful ratio there, but how would they identify who their lead was going out the door?
3: Tail markings. Okay. You have a like a T square on the tail or a a big X or some tail marking. Some unique now, You kind know, of the thing. lead might put his gear down momentarily to say, Hey, I'm the lead. Okay. He could shoot a flare, a very pistol. Okay. It's just tough. And of course, it isn't necessarily a failure that you didn't find your guy if you're all going to the same place.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
3: And so they all go over to the target, they drop their bombs, they go home. Okay. The other thing about flying in formation is it's uh, very hard on the engines and it's very hard on your fuel flow. And of course, they're at max range. Yeah. So they tried not to do that. Now, the night missions, of course, were not formation at all, they were all single file. Okay. But there were an awful lot of airplanes in the sky, same time, same place.
2: How would they, you know, using what kind of systems would they maintain their distance or follow the the track of the person in front of them?
3: Simply the time that they took off, you know, was it a minute or two minutes behind the other guy? Okay. And you're in trail. Some would be somewhat different altitudes, like you're going to bomb at five, you're going to be at seven and so on. Yep. But midair collisions were a huge risk and they happened too frequently.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, one of our other listeners, Andrew King, has asked, and obviously you're knowledgeable on this subject, but how easy or hard, I guess, is it to fly this thing?
3: If you asked me at the beginning of my <laughs> flying part of it, it would be, this is a real challenge. It's a real beast. Yeah. So as you learn the idiosyncrasies, that helps a great deal. In general terms, the controls are quite heavy it's fly by cable. Okay. As is the 17 and the 24. They're all fly by cable. There's no boost on any of these. Okay. On the ground they're very challenging because you have no nose wheel steering. You learn how to use the brakes and differential power. That works okay. All right. On takeoff it's a bigger challenge because you only have differential power and the rudder is not effective because the blast from the props are not going over the rudder into at all.
2: Provide any directional control yet?
3: Yeah. So that's a challenge. Now, once you rotate and are taking off at the lower speeds, it takes a lot of control input. There's a lot of adverse yaw. So you try to get your speed up pretty quickly. Yep. And once you're around um, 190 miles an hour, it flies very well. Okay. I liken it to the other Boeing aircraft, like a 757. You can go cruising along, just cruising along, and this thing flies great.
2: How's the noise level in the front? And obviously we kind of covered the insulation piece, but you said that in this case, FIFI, the B-29 that you're flying, doesn't have it. How does the noise impact you on that?
3: Noise canceling headsets.
2: It's <laughs> <laughs> smart. It's very smart.
3: So we operate with a great system. It's not a factor until you get, want to get up out of your seat and you take your headset off and go, whoa.
2: Gotcha. Okay.
3: It's loud, but not overwhelming. Our other bomber is kind of overwhelming.
2: So, like, obviously, you flew current commercial aircraft. What, right. uh, how would you compare it? Louder or equal to those? Oh, much louder. Much louder. Much louder. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's awesome stuff. I love all this aviation history stuff and I'm I'm hoping to do some more warbird types of episodes in the future. But getting back to some of the specifics on the B twenty nine, given that it's obviously been in combat, what are the probably the biggest things that the B twenty nine is known for?
3: The advantages and so forth that it has, of course, pressurization is the big thing and a very sophisticated gun system. Okay. Those have taken it a long way you know i'm constantly impressed with the uh, engineering that went into this now the pump that they developed or the switch or whatever it might be might be very big and heavy and bulky mm-hmm. but it's very well designed and thought out and it worked and so that provided you know the performance that they needed you know to carry those bombs a long way yeah and the remote uh, gun system was just Of a game changer as well, because the crew had to be able to survive for 16 hours in this airplane, and you can't do that when the windows open.
2: That's a long, long time. What is the average mission length, about 16 hours?
3: Yes. And there's some that have gone, you know, like 19 hours. Oh, my goodness. It's very, very challenging. So in the 15, 16-hour range was the norm.
2: For those, is that that normal crew complement that you're talking about, or do they bring on an extra pilots to keep flying, or how do they?
3: No, no. No, that's the normal crew complement, the 10 or 11 people.
2: Did they have any sleeping capacity in there beyond just laying on the floor?
3: I have seen plenty of pictures that show bunks in the back. I haven't really had a discussion with anybody that said, yeah, I went back there and took a nap, but obviously <laughs> uh, on the way back, if you could settle down, you could probably do that. But
2: Yeah, for sure you know, and those are obviously long missions and being over the Pacific, a lot of just ocean flying. What was the navigator using to get from, you know, the base of departure to the target area and back?
3: Well, the radar was a big advantage. Okay. You know, halfway up, Iwo Jima would show up on your radar. You could see the coastline. Loran was coming into being. I haven't had any real discussions on how much they use the Loran or how good it was, but that was starting to come into being. Okay, So that certainly would have been a help. But of course, they had to know their craft, and they had to be able to take the sun shots, star shots, get the pencil out in their books, and get to work, and really be able to do this by hand.
2: Timing, using the clock and yep. stop watching everything.
3: Drift meters. Okay. And that sort of thing. So using pilotage and uh, dead reckoning was a big part of it, and that's a scary thing when you're talking about 1,500 miles to find a small island.
2: Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's a needle in a haystack, if you ask me.
3: You take a new crew and you pick up an airplane at the factory and you say, you're going to Guam. So he's got to navigate to Hawaii, (laughs) (laughs) you know, something like Kwajalein. (laughs) Yeah. And and I I mean, it is jaw-dropping, really.
2: Did they have uh, radio connectivity throughout that, like uh, HF, high-frequency radios or anything?
3: They had HF. The question is In what situations did they have radio silence? Yeah. Or not? They also had command radios. And again, you know, that's lower power, supposedly aircraft, but you could also blow a mission by chatting with your neighbor, right? Absolutely. So that wasn't used real often, I don't believe.
2: Yeah. Well, obviously. uh... This thing is known for doing some bombing missions and uh, the two that we've kind of touched on a little bit here were uh, Fat Man and Little Boy and the, uh, the bombing runs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. What have you heard from the, the folks that have flown this and have gone through that time period about those two experiences?
3: Well, they actually were rather different, but there were quite a few differences between the two missions from you know, what I've read and, and looked into and, and talked about. First of all, they were very conservative about things. They would go out and do practice missions where they were dropping these pumpkins, you know, so it was the big size bombs and all. Yeah. They did a lot of navigation runs and all. So on the mission itself, they basically had seven B-29s involved. So they pre-positioned one to Iwo Jima, which was going to be a backup. That's halfway there. They could go there, swap the bomb out and go. Okay. They had weather ships that went ahead, an hour ahead they went to the primary and the alternate targets, and they would radio what kind of uh, sky conditions because they were going to need clear skies. And then they had photo aircraft. So there were seven aircraft involved.
2: Okay. And then we had talked about the Pathfinder missions prior. Were any of those other than weather ships involved?
3: No. No. So there was no Pathfinder to lead them to the target or mark the target in any way. So for the Enola Gay on on the first mission, they had very good weather, and they had a really prominent aiming point, you know, a bridge in the middle of the, the city area. Yeah. So they were able to drop that visually without any difficulty. And they had fuel in the aft bomb bay, the bomb in the forward bombay. So they flew their mission as planned, did their descending hard turn to the right, and flew back mm-hmm. to Tinian. Okay. And that was carrying a little boy. Weighed 9,700 pounds. On the next yeah. mission, they had Fat Man weighed a little more. He was ten two about. Okay. And they had fuel in the back. And before they took off, they discovered that the aft fuel pump wasn't working. Oh. So that fuel was going to be trapped. I think it was 600 gallons. Now, what do we do? You know, they're already delayed for an hour messing around with that. Now, eh, let's go. We won't need the gas anyway, right? Sure. So they get up there to the rendezvous point for their photo ship, and they're going around and around, can't find them. You know, then they go to their primary target, it's uh, clouded over, maybe even going to a second one. But anyway, so they, then they end up going to Nagasaki, they're circling there waiting for a break in the clouds. Finally, the last second, they saw what they needed to see, dropped the bomb, yep. and without a photo ship, now they got to hang around and take photos. And now they're out of gas, so they diverted to Okinawa, which was much closer than Tinian, and they barely made it to Okinawa and then had to refuel and get back to Tinian. And LeMay wasn't happy, and nobody was happy about that. But they got the job done and overcame the obstacles that they faced.
2: Oh, wow. Did either of them experience any sort of, what I would say, pushback uh, in terms of AAA or anything on the way into the target area?
3: No. Because they were a single ship, they had run some single ship missions, photo missions and so on in the weeks previous up there, different aircraft. Japanese basically let it alone. They didn't have, you know, the aircraft and time to spend going up there and chasing a single airplane they probably weren't going to catch. Okay, So they were fortunate in that respect.
2: Being the fact that it went up to 31 uh, max you know, seal it, service thing and everything, did that help when it came to basically fending off fighter aircraft.
3: Yeah, I think it did, especially early on when they didn't have the aircraft that would get up there as readily. So that helped somewhat with that.
2: That's just fascinating stuff. I can't imagine walking out the door, knowing what I've got loaded on my aircraft and knowing the capability and the damage that it can do, and then actually having to employ that thing. It's just an incredible story. And I know it is definitely... A very, I guess you would call it a touchy subject, a very sensitive subject to uh, all people involved. I know we're we're in a very different place in our world right now when it comes to uh, combat and life and stuff like that. So it is it is definitely an interesting look at humanity, uh, if you will. Well, so you did touch on the pressurization as kind of being a strength of the aircraft, the gun system, and everything else like that. Having flown it and having a little bit of time under your belt and having talked to a bunch of the guys that did it in combat, what have you come across as kind of the biggest annoyances or the things that that you wish it had that it doesn't?
3: I think wheel steering uh, would help. and taxing now is not a big deal for me. You know, I figured it out. but <laughs> takeoff is still a little bit of a well, let's see what we got, and then we've got to correct for it, okay, okay. Now, in most aircraft, you don't use nose steering on takeoff anyway, sure. but I can see where it may be of, of some help rather than free castering. Yeah. If you have steering through your rudder pedals, that's useful. The later B 29s, for example, the silver plate aircraft had reversing props. Okay. They had the Curtis electric uh, control props on it versus the Hamilton standards. And so that helps with, uh, if nothing else, slowing the aircraft down. Okay. Because we use a fair amount of runway, and it's a lot of kinetic energy. So those are two things. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, if you're making wish lists, you <laughs> would hope that at slower speeds that it would respond more readily.
2: Okay. I know looking at some of the links and, and videos and things that you've sent me, and we'll make sure that those are all in the show notes for the listeners as well. What was the re-engineering process that you guys went through fairly recently, I guess, with the aircraft?
3: The aircraft got shut down in 2004 because the engines that World War II era engines...
2: You said shut down, not shot down, right?
3: Shut down. We stopped the Yeah.
2: Okay. Just to be clear. If I
3: wasn't clear on that, let <laughs> me be clear. Yeah. Well, they stopped flying the aircraft because even though they would do an engine swap, you know, within an hour or two, they would have a chip light on saying that you're making metal in the engine and where it's not supposed to be. So they couldn't keep a reliable uh, set of engines on it. So they decided to stop flying the aircraft until they could solve that problem. Okay, And they did solve it in a big way, but it took a number of years for that to happen. So in 2010, they came out and flew it the first time with the new engines. This is because Jim Cavanaugh put up a good deal of money, over a million dollars, and said, let's get some engines on this. What were available at that time were engines that had been flown during Vietnam and post-Vietnam. Okay. And the A1 Skyraider had the 3350s. Some models of the C119 had 3350s. Okay. The P2, I think, had 3350s. But they were the later variants where they had learned from experience of what kinds of things affected the uh, reliability.
2: So the original engines that you had on there were from the no kidding original aircraft or were they remade versions?
3: We had stacks of them. Basically, you could get the old engines that were playing around, but they were all of that era.
2: Okay. So very rudimentary, if you will, in some ways compared to current engine technology.
3: Right. They had not gone through and upgraded all the things that needed to be upgraded. Okay. So it had 3350s on it, like dash 23s or something like that. You know, now we've got 3350s and we call them dash B-29s.
2: (laughs) Unique to that airplane.
3: They are unique because they didn't just bolt on. So there are certain uh, portions of it that are from Sky Raider. Some are from a C-119 to make sort of a one-off engine. Like a
2: Frankenstein, if you will. Well,
3: I would agree with that, except that they're wonderful engines
2: now. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, through all your, your flying experience with Fifi and, uh, and everything else, do you have any harrowing flights yourselves or have you heard any uh, harrowing flights from other folks that have, uh, you've chatted with?
3: I don't know. That doesn't ring a bell with me so much as just, you know, thinking in terms of the limitations that you have in order to operate it safely. Okay. For example, taxiing out operationally, you're probably going to have the outboard engine shut down because the props are going to be over the top of the uh, taxi lights. Oh, sure. And some places you have to coordinate with air traffic control, say, look, you know, we can't start our upward engines till we get on the runway and we're going to be there seven or eight minutes while we warm up and do our run up. Then we can launch. Okay. So that's the thing that we deal with. As far as, making sure that you're flying it safely, you know, we publish uh, manuals that have our procedures in it that you need to follow. And one of those is, of course, you've got a profile for takeoff. You've got a profile for landing. We do an overhead approach when we can, and that lets us hit our marks where you're at this speed, this configuration, yeah. and so on. And by doing that, you keep yourself in the realm of normal, normal, normal.
2: Yeah. Okay. What kind of pattern speed are you flying an overhead at?
3: So we come in and first of all, it's 1,500 feet for the big airplanes. We're doing 180 miles an hour is our gear speed. Okay. So you'll be at, say, manifold 2.6, manifold pressure 26 inches, 2000 RPM. Okay. You roll into the brake. If you're slightly fast, little pull, you know, 180. Gear down. Okay. So we get the gear down first, so the scanners in the back can look and make sure everything looks good with the gear. There's no fluid on the tires, so on. Mm-hmm. Then we go flaps 15. So now you're about 165, 170 on a downwind. Fly that for just a little bit. Flaps 25 landing checklist, and now you're going to be in the 160 range, 150 at the lowest. And You want to maintain 150 as you're turning base on the final. Okay. And then you can be deciding am I good? Maybe call for manifold two, four. Yeah. Because the pilot flying is not doing the throttles. He is calling these out to the flight engineer.
2: Oh, wow. You said the flight engineer is managing the throttles? Yes. Does he have one single set of throttles or are there multiple?
3: Each uh, pilot has a set of throttles as well as the flight engineer. Okay. The pilots are only using the throttles during taxi and the initial portion of the takeoff. You get up to around uh, 80 miles an hour, and the call-out is engineer throttle, set max power. I see. Okay. He, he does the engines throughout the entire flight, and then on the landing, we're making these call-outs. So then we're talking, you know, flaps uh, 35, flaps 45, and you're allowing it to slow back to your VRAF around 125 miles an hour. Okay. And as you're getting closer in, you may call manifold two two, manifold two zero and ease them off. Just pulling
2: them back. Okay.
3: Wow. And then he'll ease them off as you're flaring, depending on uh, how good of friends you are. <laughs> he'll do this nicely for you. Or just cut you know. him. <laughs> <laughs> he'll make you work for it. I mean, he said you're never looking backwards, but he can see how high the tire is above the ground, you know.
2: <laughs> I can. Yeah. Oh, that's good. and is there somebody calling out how high above the ground you are? Kind of like a U two does. No. Okay.
3: And the view is really quite dramatic because you've got all the windows. And I always say, well, for every window, you've got four window frames.
2: Yep. There's kind of like a, a skeletal kind of <laughs> nose cone up there.
3: Yeah. It's hard to see. You're ducking and moving your head and, okay. and so on to see. And the other thing is with flaps 45, for example, you're quite nose down. Okay. So you're uh, flaring, you're bringing that nose up a fair amount of change. okay. Not high, really, maybe three degrees up or so at touchdown. And because he got all the flaps out there and the props coming back to flat Mm -hmm. when you go to idle, it'll decelerate really quickly uh, as far as bleeding the speed off and touching down.
2: Very cool. How high, I know the the wing obviously kind of, you know, goes up a little bit as you get further away from the fuselage. And you're talking about, Taxi around with the outboard engines over top of typically the, the taxiway lights and whatnot. How high above the ground are those, I should say, the propellers?
3: The inboards are only a little over a foot. They're 14 inches. Okay. The good news is they're probably not going to go any lower than that because the gears right behind them. Okay, sure. But uh, the outboards are 28 inches. So in a crosswind, particularly if you have the pitch up, you can put a little wing down. Okay. Just don't get dramatic with it. Okay, sure. And stay on the center line.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's critical. That's pretty much a normal thing, I would hope, all the time. So now, obviously, you're flying this in conjunction with your duties of the Commemorative Air Force. Can you talk to me about kind of the Commemorative Air Force and the, the B-29, B-24 squadron and, and your role in that beyond just aircraft commander?
3: Well, this season, of course, everything is crazy. And uh, we've actually, our normal air power history tour is not going on this year. So okay. instead, we're... um making do with some ride flights, and uh, we're doing the Arsenal of Democracy flyover. By the time this runs, this will be history, but I'm doing that on the 25th of September, along with 60-some other World War II aircraft flying across nation's capital. And on the way back, we're doing some ride flights. We're also looking forward into 2021, where we will hopefully run a normal tour season. We don't do a lot of air shows, but we do a lot of tour stops. So the air power history tour would be both of our bombers, maybe a P-51, a T-6, a Stearman, several other aircraft coming to a city for a week. Those aircraft are flying. Most of them are flying all week. The bombers fly on the weekends. Okay. Airpowertour.org is where we have our schedule. So we'll have that for 2021. The other thing that we're doing here, if I could talk about fundraising here for a second.
2: Yeah, absolutely, please.
3: First of all, we're needing to keep the operation going. Secondly, our B-24 is in need of some special assistance so she can be ready to fly again next year. She's got some parts that we need for the landing gear. So we're doing two different elements here on our website. Our normal website is cafb 29 b four. Dot org. In there, we're doing something called Books for Bombers. For a donation, you can uh, have as an incentive, one of the B-24 books is called Before the Bell. And that's a book about a 24 called Hot Stuff that did 31 missions before the Memphis Bell did 25. And she was supposed to come home and do a bond tour. It didn't happen, didn't work out that way. But the story in that book is outstanding. Uh, very interesting and unique. The other book is called Ted's Traveling Circus. Ted Timberlake, a general, was in charge of the 93rd Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force. Fascinating, very definitive history of that in that it's a massive book. Yeah. And then for our B-29, we've got something called uh, Reign of Fire written by Charles Phillips. And he was an aircraft commander who flew the high-altitude missions, the low missions at night. He flew POW supply missions, and he had a ditching that everyone survived. There was only one injury, one crewman injured, and he had that ditching on August 6th. He did not know that the bomb had been dropped until after he'd been picked up. Oh, wow. So anyway, those books are fabulous. I hope they draw attention and help us gain some donations. The other thing that we're doing for the 24 is we have some uh, sneakers out there that are in camo and uh, B-24 Diamond Lil Insignia. And lastly, for the B-29, we're providing a plaque that has a piece of fabric from the rudder. The flight control surfaces on these bombers, believe it or not, are fabric. Oh, man. And when we last redid the rudder, we saved some patches so that we could have the, provide those to uh, those who are interested. So those are the kind of things that go on. In a year like 2020,
2: <laughs> it's been an odd one for sure. That's kind of an understatement of the of the millennia at this point. Well, that's awesome. Uh, you did talk about the flyovers and the uh, the you know week long visits to different places. Do you have any uh, anything already kind of hard scheduled for where the aircraft are planning to be at this point that you can mention now?
3: I wouldn't say scheduled. We have been talking about doing a, a fairly early in the season Florida tour. I don't know if that'll You know, it depends on what the states are doing and so on. Yeah. But we hope to do that. And typically we're doing something like through the southeast, up through the, north, you know, Atlantic coast, up the northeast, and then through the Midwest, maybe coming back down through the mountain states. Okay. That's kind of what the tour looked like last year. Okay. So I would anticipate something like that. But airpowertour.org is a great place to see what we're doing and a place to purchase rides online. Yeah, for sure. I'll just mention also that at the tour stops, that is where you can actually go into the aircraft, go through the bomb bay, go up into the cockpit. So we're not sitting in a museum. We are showing off
2: these aircraft. The no kidding hardware. That's awesome. That is really great. Well, we'll definitely have all that, the two websites, and uh, as much else as we can fit into the show notes uh, on there to make sure that we support you guys for um, not only the future of the aircraft, but um, for your time here with us today. Kind of the next. Kind of question as we transition to the wrap up here is what's next for you specifically, Al. I know obviously so you're you're retired from commercial aviation and going into the then hopefully the 2021 show season. Uh, you're able to get out there and fly some more. But what's on the horizon for you?
3: Well, I'm involved in other things in the squadron. I've over the years have developed the flight manuals and procedures, ground schools, and so on. I'm not the only one doing it, but I've been primary on that for quite a while. We'll be ramping up that in February. You know, have our ground school starting in February again this year. Okay, It's quite an effort to do that, but very rewarding. We're also doing webinars on our CAF B-29, B-24 site. We have a series of webinars that we're doing on both aircraft. I think we'll have six or seven of them by the time this airs. Okay, And so I hope those are of interest to
2: you. I have seen the B-29 webinar that you guys did in uh, July and it was amazing. I had no idea how much there was involved with the B-29 and it is an impressive beast as obviously we've talked about today, but there's diagrams and pictures and all great kinds of stuff on those things. So for the listeners out there, please go check that out. That's on that www.cafb29b24.org website. Then you can check that out on YouTube. You know, as we're thinking about this here, obviously you talked about the B-24 and needing some parts and everything. And one of our listeners, actually, I think it was uh, Scott on the staff here had asked about parts and the parts Acquisition program or challenge, I guess, of getting parts for these aircraft. Where do you guys get parts for this aircraft now that it's been, for all intents and purposes, stopped manufacturing for 70 years? A variety of uh,
3: places. A lot of things, such as gear motors, pumps, and that sort of thing, you overhaul them. Okay. So there's a lot of overhaul done. Okay. Others, you'll find a cache of. Parts here or there, oh, we have a spare aileron, oh, we've got a spare flap, we've got this, we've got that. So some of that can be uh, done in that way. Okay. Engine parts, some of the engines are more prevalent than others. On the B-24, they're 1830s, and they are available, more parts available because they flew on the DC-3s as well. Oh, okay. However, you get into some airframe parts, castings and so on. You just don't have them. So then you're doing reverse engineering. You're looking at drawings. These days, fortunately, you have something like 3D and Cam and Cat, of course, which for the right price, (laughs) (laughs) as always, you can make it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And that's kind of where we're at with the gear parts for the 24. We have identified who could do it. They've done the engineering on it. We're ready to go. But in order to write the check, we'll need to fill up the bank accounts.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, where is your headquarters located and where do the airplanes live in the off season?
3: So just a few years ago, we moved the headquarters of the CAF from Midland to Dallas Executive Airport here in Dallas. Okay. We've been going through a building program, building program, raising funds and so on. Now the buildings are going up. So with the huge hangars for the B-29 The framework has been erected. They're putting up the sides and all that. So it's wonderful to see that finally happening. So we'll be in that next summer, certainly by the next winter season. Okay. Presently, we are at Fort Worth Meacham Field at the Vintage Flying Museum. There's a big old B-29 hangar with about 15, 20 aircraft in there, including our two bombers. Oh, no way. It's a magnificent, very interesting place to go. And see a couple of A-26s and a T-33 and T-6s, oh, and a B-29 and a B-24 and <laughs> others. <laughs>
2: just amazing little secret hiding spot, if you will.
3: And that's where we do our maintenance, our winter maintenance. And that's where the aircraft are right now.
2: Oh, very good. Well, last, uh, I guess I have two questions left. The first is you talked about all the other kind of ancillary jobs beyond just flying That you're involved with, with writing manuals and and everything else like that. If somebody was interested in joining the crew or volunteering their time or trying to help out in some way beyond just uh, donating money for the fundraiser, what do you guys have as options available for that?
3: You know, we're always looking for good people who are very passionate about doing this. If you go to our regular website there, click on the join, it says join or renew, join button. Okay. It simplifies the process by allowing you to join the CAF member of Air Force, and secondarily, to join our particular squadron. Okay. There are 70 squadrons or units out there.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: But if you're going to join ours, you can do it via that button. Okay. We have people from all over the U.S. that are involved with us. Obviously, there are certain advantages to being close. Definitely. But if you can travel or you have a passion, if you can get out and tour with us, we would love to have you we're always looking for people who can be crew members who can go out for a couple, three weeks at a time Mm -hmm. and do that once or twice a season. Okay. We can hook you up. And there are other jobs that really go wanting, you know, sometimes. So we're always looking for people. So I hope it's of interest to you and I hope you'll join and you can always give me a call. I'll be happy to answer your questions.
2: There you go. That's great. All right. Well, Al, it has been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else the listeners should know before we sign off for today?
3: We've covered uh, a lot of things. I would say that I would leave you with this, that this is one of the few places where you really have a flying museum. You know, the CAF's tagline is educate, inspire, and honor. And that's what we do. And there is nothing like being out on a tour stop and seeing a World War II vet come up He's in his 90s, but he is talking about it. He wants to see that aircraft, or the family who had a father, or grandfather that did. You know, I'm got goosebumps right now talking about it because <laughs> that is what gets us going. Absolutely. And you can be part of that. You know, it's a nonprofit organization. Your dollars are tax deductible. Support us financially. Support us by joining us.
2: That's great. Yeah, that's a huge thing to hear the stories and everything else from your loved ones or family, friends or whatnot. And then being able to go out there and touch it is is a completely different experience as well. So
3: this last ride, probably I did, I just did a ride flight. Uh, it had a gentleman up in a bombardier seat and his dad was lost in a ditching. He was a bombardier in a B-29. He was lost when this gentleman was four months old. Oh my gosh. So he was there with his whole family and they were seeing what this was about. What did my dad do?
2: That's amazing. And I think there's a story on uh, Tibbets and his son. His grandson, Paul Tibbets Jr., uh, has flown
3: Fifi quite a few times back in the 70s. And again, I think as late as 98, he flew this aircraft. Uh-huh. And his grandson, who is a general, has flown this, checked out in this aircraft. I've talked to him. He is just the nicest guy, you know, the neatest guy. You know, so what a great heritage.
2: That's so great to be able to not only pass that down, but to see that connection to the people that made this, you know, a reality back in the day, as they'd like to say. So, right. Well, that's great. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there, Al. There's one final question that we usually ask at the end for uh, our guests, and that is uh, what kind of call sign do you have, if any, that you can share that's going to be, uh, I guess, PG for the crowd?
3: <laughs> well, th- you know, that's one of the things that, One of the traditions from the military that we don't really carry, and I don't really know why, you know, I'm an aircraft commander, you know, when I'm being introduced, but I think if I have a call sign, it's kept quiet so that they don't tell me, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's fair as well. You know, in, in this day and age, everything's recorded. So you got to monk the word.
3: So. Thanks for asking though, Boat. I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, man, it, uh, Al, this has been great. I really appreciate all your time. We've talked for about an hour and 15 minutes now. And I have learned so much throughout my time with you today. And I know our listeners have as well on the fantastic B-29 and what she brought to not only the fight in World War II and, and whatnot, but then some of the follow-on stuff there as well. There's more to discuss, and uh, I'll keep you on the line here for a little bit after we end the main show for a couple other questions. But for uh, all of our uh, listeners, or on behalf of all of our listeners today, I want to say thank you for your time, for everybody out there. Please do go remember uh, to uh, visit the Commemorative Air Force website at www. C-A-F-B-29-B-24.org. And then also to look forward to next year with www.airpowertour.org and uh, get involved, donate, just go out there and and watch the show and watch these amazing pieces of history, get out there and uh, do what they do best, which is fly. So again, Al, thank you so much for everything that you brought uh, with you today and all your stories and uh, experience.
3: Well, it's been my pleasure. It's uh, always great to talk about airplanes and uh, a fabulous airplane like this. You just can't beat it. So come ride with us. We sell rides on those websites, and uh, it's an experience of a lifetime, so I hope you will. So thanks very much, Boat. Appreciate uh, all the great questions.
2: Absolutely. Well, for uh, Al and Fifi, the B-29, this is Boat signing off. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by
1: BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.